Hello fellow kids and welcome back to What is Politics. Today, I want to give a very simple answer to a question that gets asked all the time and that for some reason almost no one on the left seems to be able to give a coherent answer to. And that is, why is it that every communist country is always a dictatorship? Even some of the biggest names on the left give really terrible answers to this question. Most recently, I heard Richard Wolff, who's a popular Marxist professor slash YouTube personality, completely flub this question on the Lex Friedman podcast. Friedman, who was born in the Soviet Union, asked Wolff if there was something inherent to trying to create an egalitarian society out of naturally hierarchical humans that inevitably leads to dictatorship. And Wolff responded by babbling on and on about how civilization is all about doing all sorts of things that are against our nature. And he talked about Freud's theory that this causes all kinds of traumas, but that the only other alternative is to be wild animals murdering each other all day. And wow, that is a really terrible answer on so many levels. It's basically like saying, sure, socialism would suck, but it's better than it was. Kind of like the poop tube, which you can look up for your own entertainment or horror. And Wolf's inability to answer this question is really surprising, both because Wolf must have been asked this question hundreds of times in his life, and also because the correct answer is just really, really simple. Now, if you want a good explanation for why it's not against human nature to organize on egalitarian lines, then check out all of my anthropology episodes and my ongoing Dawn of Everything critique. But for now, let's stick to why every communist country is always a dictatorship. Before I get into the easy, obvious reason for why communist countries are always dictatorships, I should point out that there are coherent explanations for this coming from the right, particularly people associated with free market economics, people like Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich Hayek, or more recently, Peter Boydke. One of these arguments is that if you try to control the free market, for example by imposing rent control, it creates unintended consequences, so like landlords harassing the tenants and neglecting their buildings. And these consequences require more and more regulations and government agencies to police. So you need anti-harassment laws and special tenant protections and special penalties for violating these rules and special housing courts so that you end up with growing, growing government until you have total government control of everything. And there are related arguments like the calculation problem that tells us that a centralized command economy necessarily leads to economic failures because you can't price things correctly without the zillions of inputs that prices from a decentralized markets give you, and how these inevitable failures incentivize corruption and dictatorship. I'll make a video debating these arguments another time, but for now, I want to point out that these arguments are beside the point. First of all, central planning without a market is not an inherent feature of socialism. While some models for socialism involve eliminating markets and having central planning, historically many socialists were actually quite enthusiastic about markets. Until the era of the Soviet Union and the rise of the other communist countries, the defining feature of socialism was that it sought to abolish dependence relationships, most crucially the employee-employer relationship, but also things like male dominance, ethnic or religious dominance, slavery, and imperialism, which is the dominance of some countries by richer and more powerful countries. Another reason why those free market arguments are a bit besides the point is that, given today's computing technology, there are good reasons to believe that you actually could have a decentralized economy even without a market. 
You can look up cybernetic planning in Chile and Bulgaria, or the OGOS in the USSR, or read books like The People's Republic of Walmart, or Red Plenty, or check out the General Intellect Unit podcast for more on this stuff. But for now, we're going to leave this fascinating topic for another episode, and instead, we're going to look at a very simple and obvious reason why all communist countries are dictatorships, which everyone seems to ignore. Drumroll. Every communist country thus far has been a dictatorship because all of them, except for one, Russia, started on purpose as dictatorships. You had one communist revolution in Russia, which was supposed to be deeply democratic, but within a couple of years, that revolution failed at socialism and failed at democracy, and it degenerated into a one-party, top-down dictatorship with a bureaucratic ruling elite class. And it was that model that every other so-called communist country explicitly emulated on purpose. Now that brings forward the question of why would all of these countries copy a failed model on purpose? There are several reasons, but there are three main ones. First of all, the Soviet Union model was attractive to these countries because while the Soviet Union completely failed at communism and democracy, it did succeed at rapid industrialization and urbanization. Russia went from being a very poor country with 85% of the population as peasants to an advanced industrialized power in about 20 to 30 years. This is something that took the first capitalist countries about 200 years to do. And it was actually this rapid industrialization that enabled Russia to win World War II. Another thing that the Soviet Union succeeded at was at escaping economic and military domination by the powerful capitalist countries, i.e. imperialism. And most socialist revolutions were also nationalist revolutions, seeking national independence from being dominated and colonized by big, powerful, rich countries. And finally, the Soviet model also succeeded at getting rid of the previous elite class and in making space for formerly poor and low-status people to rise up in all of the powerful ranks in the bureaucracy of the state. So for the first few decades of the Soviet Union, for example, you would find large numbers of people from worker and peasant backgrounds at all levels of Soviet government and industrial management, including the head of state. And Nikita Khrushchev, who was an important head of state of the Soviet Union, famously grew up as a peasant. So people in poor countries all around the world who wanted independence and development for their societies were looking at Russia and thinking, wow, I'll have what she's having. And it's not surprising that every country which had a lasting communist revolution based on the Russian Soviet model was a poor country. The only wealthier countries that had communist governments were Eastern European countries like East Germany and Czechoslovakia, where communism was basically imposed on them by force by the Soviet Union after World War II with the consent of the U.S. and the U.K. at the Yalta Conference in 1945. It's very important to point out that although it was only poor countries that ever had communist revolutions, most socialists, including Karl Marx and his followers, and including the leaders of the Russian Revolution itself, thought that communism wasn't even possible in poor countries. And we're going to get back to that very soon in a lot of detail. But another reason that poor countries emulated the Soviet model and not other democratic models of socialism was that the Soviet Union purposefully trained, recruited, and funded revolutionaries in poor countries. And it tried to control socialist movements and parties everywhere around the world in order to mold them after the Soviet Union's image, both to justify the structure of the Soviet Union for its own citizens, but also so that they could have allies and trading partners, and so that they could get all of these other socialist movements to serve the Soviet Union's interests. 
So if you are a nationalist, anti-imperialist, third world revolutionary, you could go to a school in Moscow and learn how to lead a successful revolution. And you can get money and weapons for your cause and a blueprint for what to do and how to start industrializing your country. Ironically, the two countries in the 20th century where there were actual successful socialist revolutions that were free and democratic had their revolutions crushed by the Soviet Union. And those two countries are Spain, where the libertarian socialists, aka anarchists, carried out a successful socialist revolution in much of the country during the Spanish Civil War from 1936 to 1939, and the Ukraine, where the western part of the country was in anarchist hands from 1918 to 1921. Meanwhile, in Chile, the one wealthier country that elected a government that was serious about transitioning to a parliamentary form of socialism, had its government overthrown by a US-backed coup in 1973 and replaced by a free market-oriented dictatorship. So that's the short Tink Tonk answer to the question of why every communist country is a dictatorship. There was one failed communist revolution in Russia, and everyone else copied that on purpose because they wanted to industrialize and remain independent from the rich countries. While at the same time, the USSR and the USA made sure to crush any kind of democratic socialism in the bud the few times that it appeared. Now, as simple as this answer is, a lot of the things that I just said might seem confusing or like they contradict a lot of the stuff that you've learned in your life. Like when I say that the Russian Revolution failed, or that communism is supposed to be democratic, or that early socialists were very enthusiastic about the market. So let's get into the long answer for everyone whose head is spinning or exploding. But before I get into the details of this stuff, I want to point out that I did not make this particular theory up. The idea that all communist revolutions were primarily a means to industrialize poor countries and to achieve national independence was first articulated in a book from 1957 called The New Class by Milovan Gilas. Gilas had been a top communist official in Yugoslavia, and before that he had been one of the partisan fighters who liberated Belgrade from the Nazis and established communism in Yugoslavia in the first place. And just before writing The New Class, Gilas had been stripped of his position and expelled from the Communist Party for criticizing corruption among other top Yugoslav officials, and also for calling for an end to one-party rule in favor of a socialist multi-party democracy. And soon after that, he was thrown in jail for criticizing the government of Yugoslavia in the foreign press. So why do I say that the Russian Revolution failed at communism, when the Soviet Union is always described in pro- and anti-communist sources alike as the most important communist country in the world for 80 years? And what do I mean when I say that the leaders of the Russian Revolution didn't think that communism was possible in a poor country like Russia? Why would they undertake a communist revolution if they didn't think communism was possible in the first place? Before we can make sense of any of this, we first need some kind of definition of socialism and communism. And to do that, we need to look at the history of socialism and communism. Like all political terms, the words socialism and communism are words that most people use without really knowing what they mean. Everyone kind of just feels what they mean, having inferred their meanings from journalists and academics and YouTube bro dudes who also have no idea what these words mean. And whenever we just feel the definitions of words without knowing what they mean, that's a huge red flag, pun intended, that we're being manipulated. And socialism and communism are words whose meaning a lot of powerful people around the world have been interested in distorting and manipulating. Wealthy people, and the governments who represent them in the capitalist countries, have defined these words in ways that manipulate us into hating certain things that we might otherwise love. Like most people would probably love the idea of workers directly running the government and their workplaces. 
and these were historically the core tenets of socialism. Meanwhile, the leaders of former and current communist countries have defined the word socialism and communism in ways that manipulate us into loving or excusing things that we might otherwise hate. Like, most people hate the idea of a dictatorship over the workers by and for bureaucrats. And we'll see in a few minutes how this starts with Lenin, the founder and head of what became the Soviet Union. In mainstream corporate journalism and academia, the word socialism tends to mean state government control over the most important sectors of the economy. And the word communism is used to describe a one-party dictatorship and a centralized command economy. Since Bernie Sanders' presidential runs in the United States, a lot of people now use the word socialism to refer to a capitalist economy which has an advanced welfare state, like the Scandinavian countries. Hilariously, in American right-wing media, and especially right-wing alternative and social media, you'll often hear the word socialism used to describe a system where rich and powerful zillionaires like Jeff Bezos and George Soros and Bill Gates use government power in order to prevent potential competitors from ever being able to threaten their wealth. And I say hilariously because when socialism started out, this was basically the socialist definition of the word capitalism. Meanwhile, among people who admire the so-called communist countries, the word socialism is used to describe a transitional period between capitalism and communism, where the government takes control of major industries and the population becomes employees of the state, while the state industrializes and creates the conditions for communism. And the word communism means a stateless society where workers directly control the economy and the government. Note how contradictory all of these definitions are. So let's iron out what was historically meant by the words of socialism and communism so that we can understand where the leaders of the Russian Revolution were coming from and what they were trying to do when they hit the scene in the early 20th century and why their revolution turned into a dictatorship and how that dictatorship became a model for third world national liberation movements. The word socialism was the name given to a broad range of ideas which emerged in the first decades of the 1800s. What these ideas had in common is that they rejected the economic and political system that was emerging at the time, which the socialists called capitalism. And the word capitalism was actually a slur word invented by these early socialists in order to describe a system where the owners of capital, and capital means productive property, will use their control of the state and their market power to enrich themselves and to entrench their power over the rest of the population, and their employees in particular. And in capitalism, the more capital that you have, the more power that you have. And that power is economic power, but it's also political power. It's political power because capital and money give you the power to tell people what to do. Remember that the word politics refers to decision-making groups. So in capitalism, the owner of capital has the power to boss around the people who depend on that capital. That's why the owner of a company tells his employees what to do and not the other way around, even though the owner might be just one person and the employees might be a thousand people or 10,000 people. In the private sphere, capitalism is not a democracy. It's a dictatorship of the owner. The person who owns the property gets to tell the people who depend on his property what to do. And the only power that the dependent people have, that you have, is whatever your bargaining power accords you. Ultimately, that means that you just have the power to walk away and refuse to serve the employer or to rent the landlord's apartment. 
but that means you also are deprived of the benefits of the capital that you depend on, meaning the apartment that you live in or the job that you work at, which you need to survive. And realistically, you only have that power to walk away to the extent that you have better options, another apartment to go live in, a better job. And the more capital you have, the more people there will be who will be dependent on your property, whether it's as tenants, as employees, or as consumers of your products. So for example, if you own all the water sources and all the food sources for your town, you will rule that town. And that's basically how many early ancient kingdoms got all of their power. Capitalism is only different from previous systems in terms of the forms that this dependency takes. And in capitalism, it's based on property rights and contracts and employer-employee relationships of renting your labor rather than things like divine right or tribal affiliation or military conquest or other traditional relationships. The other form of political power that you get from being an owner with a lot of capital is what we normally think of when we hear the word politics, and that's power over the state. In modern representative democracies, all citizens are supposed to have equal political power through one person, one vote. But in reality, we all know that the more capital you have, the more you dominate the political system beyond your tiny little vote. And this happens in a whole variety of ways. The most obvious one is through campaign donations, where you get to choose which politicians can and can't afford to be seen and heard by voters. And then there's ownership of the media and internet companies, where you get to choose which politicians get to be seen and heard and which don't, and which ideas get to be seen and heard and which don't. And this takes on a lot more importance nowadays in the age of the internet and social media, which are more and more banning certain ideas and blocking out even certain politicians from speaking. And then there are donations to universities, where you get to influence what research scientists do, and what elites and professionals think, and what theories are popular in economics, politics, medicine, and every other discipline. Even if you live in a country that has strict campaign finance laws and publicly funded universities, the big corporations and multi-billionaires still have enormous power over the political system. And that power comes through the ownership of the media and leverage that they have over jobs and investment, but also, very importantly, because they have the money to hire lobbyists who work 24-7 to expose politicians to the capital owner's point of view. So 24-7, politicians of every stripe are listening to things like, oh, you can't raise the minimum wage, that'll reduce employment and destroy our businesses and reduce jobs. And you can't raise taxes on rich people because that takes away our incentive to innovate. And you can't have rent control because that just reduces the housing supply. And you can't have low-cost pharmaceuticals because then pharmaceutical companies won't have any money to do research. So legislators are being fed these ideas day in and day out. And in the United States, corporate think tanks commonly go so far as to write the laws that their wind-up monkey doll politicians then go off and rubber stamp in Congress and in the Senate. Meanwhile, there are very few people or organizations exposing politicians to ordinary people's points of view, or writing draft legislation in favor of tenants or employees. And the overwhelming majority of people don't belong to these underfunded, understaffed, and often idiotically inefficient organizations. Most people only know how to vote every few years and maybe write an email once in a while or give an angry, incoherent speech at a town hall meeting where you don't even know what you're talking about. And all of this power that the wealthy have over the state was much more blatant in the early 19th century, where in most countries that even had elected parliaments, you needed to have a certain amount of property just to have the right to vote. So a socialist was someone who wanted to replace the system where the more capital you have, the more power you have, with something where everyone has relatively equal power and where the economy and the political system exist in order to benefit the entire society, not just people who own a lot of capital. Early on, there were some authoritarian elitist versions of socialism, like Saint-Simonianism, 
where a wise elite would run things for the benefit of the rest, a bit like in Plato's Republic. But as the 19th century went on, and the workers' movement became an important driver of socialist ideas, those kinds of authoritarian visions of socialism largely faded out in favor of popular, hyper-democratic visions of socialism. And these versions of socialism were either directly democratic, where workers would directly control the government and their workplaces, like in anarchism or in Marxism, or else via their unions, like in syndicalism, or they'd be representatively democratic, like via elected state representatives, and that vision of socialism was called Lasallism. And I'll call that parliamentary socialism to avoid jargon and confusion. One of the main aims of the socialist movement at this point was to abolish the employer-employee relationship and the landlord-tenant relationship. These relationships were seen as the next step up on the ladder of oppressive relationships after the master-slave relationship and the lord-serf relationship. Wage labor was better in a lot of ways than slavery or serfdom. In a lot of ways, because in other ways, slaves and serfs were often treated better than the lowest wage earners. And although wage earners technically had more freedom, they often had to work such long hours in such horrible, atrocious conditions just to survive that they couldn't actually exercise any of their freedoms. Slavery and serfdom and wage labor were seen as similar in the sense that there was a relationship of servitude based on one person controlling property that the other depended on. And remember that the word employee means human tool. I employ a shovel to help me dig a ditch. I employ a worker and let him use my shovel so that he can dig a ditch so that I don't have to. I own a slave, but I rent a worker. Better, but still servitude. Different socialists had different ideas about how politics and property should be managed. Like, should people be able to own their own plots of land and trade their products on the market? Or should everything be owned collectively and exchanged according to need or some collective democratic decision-making process? But all of the main strains of socialism agreed that wage labor should be abolished, and that any property that many people depended on needed to be controlled by the people who depended on it, meaning workers and consumers, and that control should be exercised either through the form of a cooperative or a commune or else through state representatives. It should under no circumstances be controlled by an outside force, like a private owner or else a non-democratic government. In the words of Eugene Debs, the most prominent socialist in the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries, what is it that socialism proposes? Simply that the tools working men made and use, and upon which their very lives depend, shall be owned by themselves, and that they may fully produce the things that are required to keep themselves and their families in comfort and health. All this to say that the main tenets of socialism were democracy and freedom. Freedom from servitude to a king, a master, a government, a business owner, or a husband. Freedom to make the decisions that affect you, via direct democracy in the workplace, direct democratic control over collective property, and direct or representative democratic control over the broader decision-making institutions. In the words of Friedrich Engels, Karl Marx's partner in organizing and theorizing, the communist revolution will, quote, establish a democratic constitution, and through this, the direct or indirect dominance of the proletariat, and the proletariat means wage workers who don't own significant property. Marx saw real democracy and communism as basically one and the same thing. And to quote a paraphrase of Marx's early terrible writing, quote, To Marx, what makes democracy true is not the equal opportunity of every citizen to devote himself to public life as something special, but, quote, the immediate participation of all in deliberating and deciding on political matters. There should be no professional bureaucrats, no professional politicians, no professional police, etc. Political deliberation and administration would be the work of everyone, 
on a part-time or short-term basis. It would not be sufficient to have only a chance to serve. The chance of every Catholic to become a priest, Marx remarked, does not produce the priesthood of all. Unquote. Vladimir Lenin, who is the leader of the Communist Revolution in Russia, and who was the head of state of Russia from 1917 until he died in 1924, tells us that, quote, Under socialism, all will govern in turn, and will soon be accustomed to no one governing, unquote. And Leon Trotsky, another leading figure in the Russian Revolution, apparently tells us that, quote, Communism needs democracy like the human body needs oxygen, unquote. And I say apparently because I've seen that quote a million times, but I can't actually find the source for that. But you get the idea. Communism is supposed to be democratic. So socialism and communism are supposed to be democratic. But what's the difference between communism and socialism? The short answer is nothing. These were terms that were often used interchangeably by the originators of socialism through Marx and up until 1917. The long answer is that although these terms were used interchangeably, the word communism was sometimes used by Marx and Engels and the parties influenced by them to distinguish themselves from other kinds of socialists. The main distinction being that the communists were generally against private property and market relations, and they believed in Marx's so-called scientific socialism which is a fancy way of saying that they think about ideas and political systems in terms of their material context, which we'll talk about in a bit, as opposed to idealists and utopians who think about ideas and political systems just forming randomly out of people's minds. Regardless of these distinctions, you can read Marx and Engels using the terms socialism and communism interchangeably and synonymously for their entire careers and lives, along with other more descriptive terms like the free association of the producers, which is the term that Marx probably used the most to describe socialism. Other socialists, like Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, who's one of the early leading anarchist thinkers and whose philosophy inspired the Paris Communards, which we'll talk about in a bit, were big fans of the free market. And they were okay with people owning property, so long as you couldn't own the property that other people depended on, and so long as labor couldn't be rented. In other words, they were pro-market, but against a market for labor, and against the employee-employer relationship, which again, the abolition of which was one of the main objectives of socialism in general, once you get to the mid-19th century. Most people have it in their heads that socialism or communism means that the state controls everything and manages the planned economy in the name of the workers, which is what you saw in all of those so-called communist countries until Vietnam and China took a weird turn towards capitalism, which we'll explain later. But what was the actual socialist and communist attitude towards the state? Whereas one popular branch of 19th century socialism, called Lasallism, envisioned a democratic state controlling the economy. The two most popular forms of socialism, Marxism and anarchism, were expressly against the state even existing, never mind controlling anything. Both the anarchists and Karl Marx and his followers believed that the state was by definition an instrument that was used by one class of people to oppress and exploit the rest of the population. In slave societies, the state reinforces the master's rights. In feudalism, the state enforces the rights of the nobility to extract surplus from the serfs. And in capitalism, the state enforces a version of property rights that ensures that people who have lots of capital get to command people who don't have capital. And those people have to rent themselves out as employees to those people who do have capital. And the state protects people with lots of property from losing it in all sorts of ways. Therefore, in a communist classless society, there could be no state because no one would be controlling anyone else, and there would just be no purpose for it. 
Keep in mind that this was an era where there was no welfare state as we know it. The state was largely just institutions of coercion. Courts, armies, police, prisons, and sometimes poorhouses and asylums, which were a lot like prisons, keeping undesirables out of the eyes of rich people. Marx and Engels tell us that the state is, quote, the form in which the individuals of a ruling class assert their common interests, unquote. And the modern state is, quote, nothing more than the form of organization which the bourgeois are compelled to adopt for the mutual guarantee of their property and interests, unquote. And the bourgeois means property owners, capital owners. Marx also tells us that, quote, the working class cannot simply lay hold on the ready-made state machinery and wield it for their own purpose. The political instrument of their enslavement cannot serve as the political instrument for their emancipation, unquote. And Engels tells us that, Quote, the society which organizes production anew on the basis of free and equal association of the producers will put the whole state machinery where it will then belong, into the Museum of Antiquities, next to the spinning wheel and the bronze axe. Unquote. And he also tells us that after the revolution, quote, the interference of the state power in social relations becomes superfluous in one sphere after another, and then ceases of itself. The government of persons is replaced by the administration of things and the direction of production. The state is not abolished, but it atrophies." Unquote. Where Marxists differed from anarchist communists was that anarchists thought that you needed to destroy the state right away as part of the socialist revolution, whereas the Marxists thought that the workers needed to temporarily seize the state as part of a revolution in order to prevent the former ruling class from trying to take back power. And the workers would hold on to the state until the former owners became assimilated into the working class. And Marx and Engels called this temporary seizure of power the, quote, dictatorship of the proletariat. Marx and Engels' ideas about the form and duration of the dictatorship of the proletariat changed at different points in Marx's life. But the important thing to know about the term is that dictatorship in the mid-19th century was not so much the concept of one-man rule or lack of democracy, the way that it's understood today. It was rather understood as a state of temporary emergency. It had connotations of the ancient Roman institution of the dictatura, where in times of war and other emergencies, the Roman constitution allowed for the Senate to elect a leader with limited powers who could make decisions without having to wait for the Senate to deliberate and approve of his actions. And this period of special powers would end when the crisis would end. Marx mostly used the term dictatorship to mean dominance. So he calls a representative democratic parliament the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, meaning the dominance of the business class, because they dominate via all their power over the representative government. And that's why he uses phrases like the dictatorship of the democracy or democratic dictatorship, which sounds like self-contradictory nonsense to 21st century or even 20th century ears. Later on, Marxists like Lenin and Trotsky use the term dictatorship in the same way, but they also more often use it to mean a state of emergency. In the 1850s, Marx and Engels spoke as if the dictatorship of the proletariat was about seizing control of the state as it exists with its various institutions. And this is the version that's more well known because it's from the Communist Manifesto, which is easy to read and which became well known in the 20th century, a hundred years after it was published as an obscure pamphlet. Now, even in this version, which is the more statist version, the dictatorship of the proletariat was still supposed to be totally democratic for workers. It's only the owning class that would be subject to state rule without elected representation, until they assimilated into the working class, at which point the state no longer really has any reason to exist because it's not suppressing anyone, and that's the whole point of a state. 
The anarchists thought that this was wishful thinking at best, and opportunist deception at worst. In the famous words of Mikhail Bakunin, who was the leading thinker of the anarchist movement and Marx's biggest rival for the leadership of the International Workingmen's Association, quote, If there is a state, there must be domination of one class by another, and as a result, slavery. The state without slavery is unthinkable. What does it mean that the proletariat will be elevated to a ruling class? Is it possible for the whole proletariat to stand at the head of the government? The Marxist theory solves this dilemma very simply. By the people's rule, they mean the rule of a small number of representatives elected by the people. This is a lie, behind which lurks the despotism of the ruling minority, a lie all the more dangerous in that it appears to express the so-called will of the people. The Marxists say that this minority will consist of workers, yes, possibly of former workers, who, as soon as they become rulers of the representatives of the people, will cease to be workers and will look down at the plain working masses from the government heights of the state. They will no longer represent the people, but only themselves and their claims to rulership over the people. Those who doubt this know very little about human nature. The fundamental difference between a monarchy and even the most democratic republic is that in the monarchy, the bureaucrats oppress and rob the people for the benefit of the privileged in the name of the king and to fill their own coffers while in the Republic, the people are robbed and oppressed in the name of the free will of the people. But the people will feel no better if the stick with which they are being beaten is labeled the people stick." Unquote. And if you know the history of the Soviet Union, you can see just how prescient this whole passage is. But also note that here Bakunin is criticizing Marx and Engels' early version of the dictatorship of the proletariat. In 1870, 20 years or so after the Communist Manifesto, there was a workers' revolution led by anarchists and other non-Marxist socialists in Paris, which established the Paris Commune. This was a communist society which lasted about two months until it was crushed by the military. After the Commune happened, Marx and Engels declared that the Paris Commune was in fact what the dictatorship of the proletariat was supposed to look like which is to say, a very democratic network of assemblies with no professional army or state police or professional bureaucracy, just armed citizens and their representatives directly governing themselves and defending the revolution. And Marx and Engels noted that the revolutionaries did the right thing in basically dismantling the state from the get-go. And at this point, Engels tells us, quote, The state is nothing but a machine for the oppression of one class by another, and indeed in the democratic republic no less than in the monarchy and at best an evil inherited by the proletariat after its victorious struggle for class supremacy, whose worst sides, the proletariat, just like the commune, cannot avoid having to lop off at the earliest possible moment, until such time as a new generation, reared in new and free social institutions, will be able to throw the entire lumber of the state on the scrap heap." Unquote. And although Engels talks about the Paris Commune as if it's a form of state, the Paris Commune was built in part by anarchists, and most anarchists consider the Paris Commune as an example of what an anarchist communist society might look like. And a few years later, in 1874, Marx wrote a now mostly forgotten point-by-point -point response to Bakunin's State and Anarchy book. So, where Bakunin says, quote, What does it mean that the proletariat will be elevated to a ruling class? Will all 40 million German workers be members of the government? Marx responds, Certainly, for the system starts with the self-government of the communities. Unquote. By the time we get to the 20th century, as Marxist political parties gained success in many European countries, both in terms of pushing non-socialist governments to adopt socialist demands, but also in terms of actually winning elections, Marxists start becoming much friendlier to the state. So in 1892, Karl Kautsky, 
who was the leading Marxist after Marx and Engels died, theorizes that the modern state is the right mechanism with which to organize the communes and cooperatives of the future. And a whole branch of Marxism, led by Edward Bernstein, abandons violent revolution entirely and adopts a parliamentary socialist type of ideology, kind of like Lasallism, where you just keep passing better and better laws in the existing state system until you eventually get to socialism. But nonetheless, at the time of the Russian Revolution, the full spectrum of socialists, from anarchists to revolutionary Marxists to parliamentary Marxists, still had a very democratic vision of what socialism and communism were supposed to look like. Okay, so that's a little intro to socialism and communism. Movements that were supposed to bring about direct democracy and the abolition of relations of dominance, such as the employer-employee relationship and the state. So why did Marx and his followers, right up until the Russian Revolution, including the leaders of that revolution, think that socialism was only possible in rich countries? One of the big things about Marx that set him apart from other socialists at the time, though Marxists exaggerate this somewhat, is that Marx looked at politics and history with a special emphasis on the context of the practical conditions which shape and constrain the range of human choices, and which influence our ideas. His famous quote is, Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. And this focus on context and practical conditions is referred to in general as materialism. To give you some modern examples of how materialism is applied, check out my Anthropology and Dawn of Everything episodes. Basically, Marx's point was that, whereas other socialists spoke as though establishing socialism was just a matter of convincing enough people to agree with you, and then you just make it happen, Marx pointed out that free will only becomes an important factor when practical conditions are such that it's actually materially possible to achieve your goals. He and Engels dismissed other socialists as utopians, and dubbed their own ideas as scientific socialism, which made it weird and contributed to the cult-like mentality which afflicted many of his followers. But at its core, it's just common sense. Like, if you really want to build a big flying machine so that you can fly in the air like a bird, it doesn't matter how bad you want to fly. If your society hasn't developed light metals and fossil fuels and glass and industrial production, it's just not going to happen until those conditions are met. So in Marx's view, socialism wasn't just going to happen because socialists were going to convince enough people to make it happen via their amazing arguments. It was going to happen because it was being made possible, and maybe even inevitable, by some practical realities generated by capitalism itself. Capitalism makes its own gravediggers was one of Marx's many famous phrases. More and more people were going to be convinced by socialist arguments, not because of the increasing quality of socialist orators or Marxist theories, but because capitalism was going to push more and more people into a class position that inherently made socialist ideas more attractive and compelling to them, the same way that rent control is much more popular among renters than it is among landlords. So on the one hand, capitalism's internal dynamics were going to generate its own economic destruction, including periodic economic crises and massive crashes and depressions, which were quite frequent and severe in Marx's time, and also by the tendency of profits to decrease over the long term as competition increased, so that eventually it would be almost impossible for capitalists to generate profits by the normal market mechanisms. 
And on the other hand, he saw that capitalism was also generating the conditions for its own political overthrow. There were larger and larger numbers of formerly independent peasants being pushed off of their lands by a combination of state-imposed laws and market forces. And these people were concentrating in larger and larger numbers in wretched urban slums, working and living in deplorable conditions for barely subsistence wages, when they were lucky enough to be employed at all. And they were being abused and exploited by bosses at work, and then they were being abused and ripped off by landlords at home, all leading to ferocious resentment and discontent. Meanwhile, the fact that urban workers were concentrated into huge numbers in crowded slums, but also at work in large factories, meant that workers were socializing and getting to know each other, and beginning to understand their common struggles and interests, as well as their numerical strength. And in the 19th century, workers were beginning to organize and fight back, forming illegal labor unions and going on strikes and taking other peaceful and violent actions to defend their interests and achieve their goals. Marx called these urban workers the proletariat, named after the class of ancient Roman citizens who were too poor to buy weapons to serve in the army and who only had their offspring to provide to the army. Proletarius means producer of offspring, someone who owns nothing but their own children. In the Roman case, you gave your children to the military. In the capitalist case, you gave your children to the factory owner or the mine owner. So Marx saw that as capitalism would keep doing its thing, the proletariat would grow and grow, and that naturally this proletariat would eventually come to understand that they'd be better off just getting rid of the capitalists entirely and putting the factories under the control of the people who worked in them so that they could run them for their own benefit and for that of their communities. Basically, capitalism was building the economic wealth and the natural infrastructure and the political base for a socialist economy. And unlike farming or small artisanal production, capitalist factories were already inherently communal. They required large numbers of people working together to operate them. The only problem was that all of the power was in the owner of these communities, while the workers were just tools to be used and exploited and discarded. All that needed to happen was for that power to be distributed evenly. So when socialists are talking about equality, they're talking about equality of power more than anything else. In Marx's words, quote, Capitalism begets its own negation with the inexorability which governs the metamorphoses of nature, that it has itself created the elements of a new economic order. Capitalist property, resting as it actually does already on a form of collective production, cannot do other than transform itself into social property, unquote. And it's only a matter of time before conditions are such that the workers will realize that they should and that they have the power to make this happen. So it's practical conditions that will generate socialist consciousness. In the words of Trotsky, quote, Socialism does not aim at creating a socialist psychology as a prerequisite to socialism, but at creating socialist conditions of life as prerequisites to a socialist psychology. Unquote. And once capitalism had developed to the point that most of the economy was in the hands of proletarian employees, they would be in a position to do just that. All they had to do was be organized so that they could strike all at once, and the whole economy would grind to a halt, and then workers could take control of the economy that's already in their hands in the first place. And this presumably large majority of the population would be allied with dissatisfied, downwardly mobile artisans whose livelihoods were being destroyed by mass production, and peasants, and the occasional dissident middle class or bourgeois intellectual, which together would comprise an overwhelmingly large majority of the population. And that's when you'd start to see communist revolutions happening in the most highly industrialized societies with the biggest proletariats. Meanwhile, when it came to peasants, Marx didn't see them as reliable supporters of socialism. 
while on the one hand, they strongly desired to be rid of exploitation by landlords and lenders. What they most wanted was their own plot of land to work on and improve. And therefore, they would be less attracted to his vision of socialism, which was a highly technological society that required the abolition of markets and trading and the establishment of large-scale industry, including large-scale agricultural cooperatives and communes. Moreover, due to being more spread out and more isolated geographically from each other, peasants were less likely to interact and become aware of their common interests as a class than crowded urban proletarians were. And here's Marx explaining about why the peasants ended up supporting dictator Napoleon III over democracy in 1848 in France. Quote, the small-holding peasants form an enormous mass, whose members live in similar conditions, but without entering into manifold relations with each other. Their mode of production isolates them from one another, instead of bringing them into mutual intercourse. Each individual peasant family is almost self-sufficient, directly producing most of its consumer needs, and thus acquires its means of life more through an exchange with nature than an intercourse with society. A small holding, the peasant and his family. Beside it, another small holding, another peasant and another family. A few score of them constitute a village, and a few score villages constitute a department. Thus the great mass of the French nation is formed by the simple addition of homologous magnitudes, much as potatoes in a sack form a sack of potatoes. The identity of their interests forms no community, no national bond, and no political organization among them. They do not constitute a class. They are therefore incapable of asserting their class interest in their own name, whether through a parliament or a convention. They cannot represent themselves. They must be represented." Their representative must at the same time appear as their master, as an authority over them, an unlimited governmental power which protects them from the other classes and sends them rain and sunshine from above. Unquote. So to Marx, peasants were like tiny poor capitalists. He called them petits bourgeois, little business owners. And his disdain for peasants was amplified by his followers, as we'll see later. Later on in his life, after the Paris Commune, Marx thought more favorably about the potential for peasants to ally with workers. But hostility and suspicion towards peasants and people without education remained a strong tendency among Marx's followers. So when Marxists talk about the working class, they're not usually talking about people who work. They're usually referring to the proletariat, people who are employees and who also don't own anything significant. And sometimes they're not so much interested in them for moral reasons, like because they're especially oppressed and how it's so unfair, how they're being exploited, etc., which is just as true of many peasants, but they're interested in them because they're that group of people that are supposed to actually make socialism happen. And if you read a lot of the Marxists when they start getting into positions of power, they start talking about the working class as if it's some kind of giant horsey for them to ride into power on. Now, the role of the communist intellectual or activist in achieving socialism was supposed to be to teach people about the idea of socialism and help them organize themselves so that when the inevitable collapse came, that the workers could make socialism happen versus it just resulting in chaos and destruction or some awful new order imposed by the wealthy, like fascism, which hadn't been invented yet, but which fits the bill. In the words of Karl Kautsky, quote, As things stand today, capitalist civilization cannot continue. We must either move forward into socialism or fall back into barbarism." Unquote. Another job of the socialist organizer was to form political parties to push for workers' interests and their rights, and maybe under very special conditions in the very richest and most advanced countries like England or Netherlands or the United States, they could take power via elections rather than via a violent revolution. 
And keep in mind that when these parties started, most of them weren't running in elections because there were no elections for most people. These parties at first were more associations for organizing and were often illegal until workers started winning the universal right to vote. So that's why the famous leaders of the Russian Revolution, like Lenin and Trotsky, did not think it would be possible for communist revolution to succeed in poor countries like Russia. It was in the rich countries where the process of the peasants being pushed off their land and churned out into a concentrated proletariat was the most advanced. And it was in the rich countries that these crises of capitalist chaotic market crashes and declining profits were the most pronounced and the most destructive. In poor countries at this time, the overwhelming number of people were still peasants, petit bourgeois sacks of potatoes in the minds of Marxists, with no education and no awareness outside of their own tiny plot of land or village. These poor countries might have revolutions, but they wouldn't be socialist revolutions. They would be bourgeois revolutions, meaning revolutions that would be like the French Revolution, which would eliminate monarchy and traditional feudal relations, and then start either a capitalist democratic republic or a capitalist non-democratic republic, like Napoleon's dictatorship. Also, the Marxist version of socialism was about large-scale industry and mass production, generating enough wealth for everyone to be able to enjoy. They couldn't imagine a version of socialism based on small-scale agricultural or urban production. So for large-scale industry to happen, you needed capitalism first in order to turn peasants into urban workers. And actually, Milovan Gilas, the Yugoslav dissident who I mentioned earlier, noted that given how the communist dictatorships ended up performing the same tasks as capitalism had in terms of urbanizing and industrializing, that they were in fact setting the stage for true democratic communism, which would first require the overthrow of those so-called communist dictatorships. Anyhow, in Marx's view, it was the most developed capitalist countries, England, Netherlands, Italy, Germany, the United States, that's where you'd have the big socialist revolutions. Only then could you have socialism come to poor countries, because the proletariat in the rich countries would share their knowledge with the proletariat and the peasants in the poor countries. And at that point, peasants would be interested in moving to urban centers on purpose because it would mean greater standard of living for them, and they could join large agricultural cooperatives out of their own choice rather than from coercion by the market or by government bureaucrats. So poor countries could only have socialism after the revolution had already come to the rich countries. Later in his life, Marx had some thoughts that maybe you could have some kind of peasant socialism in countries like Russia, where you had a tradition of peasant communes and village democracy. But most of his followers didn't even know that these ideas existed. So the traditional Marxist view was that communist revolution in a poor country would inevitably fail. And this was true, of course, for Russia, where 85% of its population were peasants at the time of the Russian Revolution, and where there was no capitalist industry besides peasant trading outside of two cities, Moscow and St. Petersburg. That's why Leon Trotsky, one of the leaders of the communist revolution in Russia, said in 1906 that Left to its own resources, the working class of Russia will inevitably be crushed by the counter-revolution the moment the peasantry turns its back on it. Unquote. Meanwhile, many Marxists believe that if revolutionaries in a poor country would manage to seize power and then somehow manage to hold on to power in the absence of a European revolution, that this would just end up turning into a horrible dictatorship in the strongman dictator sense. In 1885, the big Russian Marxist theoretician of the day, Georgi Plekhanov, was one of the first people to articulate this. He said that in the event that a revolution in Russia happened before capitalism had done its work of industrializing the country, that, quote, There will not be any self-government by the people, and the revolution may lead to a political monster similar to that of the ancient Chinese or Peruvian empires, i.e. to a renewal of czarist despotism with a communist lining, unquote. And then he goes on to quote Engels to say that, quote, 
The worst thing that can befall a leader of an extreme party is to be compelled to take over a government in an epoch when the movement is not yet ripe for the domination of the class which he represents. Unquote. Plekhanov believed that after a revolution, independent peasant villages might start out equally. But over time, the natural workings of the peasant market economy would generate inequality and capitalism all over again. You'd end up with a class of owners, and then a class of indebted dependents, and a class of landless farm laborers, and the only way to stop this would be for the government to turn into a big tyrannical state to prevent trade and confiscate any excess wealth from the peasants and suppress them from fighting back. Another argument was that without capitalism pushing peasants into debt and bankruptcy and forcing them to sell their products to the cities for low prices and to immigrate to the cities in search of work, if instead there was a revolution where peasants would just get more land that they could work on, which is what they wanted, and then they'd be happy and more prosperous, that this would slow down industrialization to a halt. And this is what every Marxist socialist, including the leaders of the Russian Revolution, believed right up until the early 1920s, already a few years into the Russian Bolshevik Revolution. Because of this, as far back as the 1870s, non-Marxist socialists in Russia were making fun of Marxists like Plekhanov for actually being in favor of capitalism and for being in favor of throwing peasants into urban poverty. A playwright even made a satirical character based on this idea in 1879. Isn't the whole point of socialism to stop capitalism and urban poverty? What kind of socialist actually wants to make capitalism happen? A Marxist socialist with his scientific socialism. That's who... So why did Lenin and Trotsky and all the rest carry out the Russian October Revolution when they understood that it was doomed to fail? And what's the point of having a Marxist socialist party in the first place if you're in a country where you can't do socialism according to Marxist theory? And what is it that changed their minds? And why did it take several years into the actual Russian Revolution to change their minds? All this and more on the next episode of What is Politics? Because I'm 20 pages into the script and we're still not halfway done. So we'll do this next time. And next time, we'll also look at why the Russian Revolution failed and turned into a dictatorship. Was it doomed in advance because Russia wasn't industrialized enough, the way that Marxist theory predicts? Or was it because socialism is just incompatible with human beings, like Lex Friedman was suggesting? Or was it because the leaders of the Russian Revolution just made bad choices? And we'll also see how Lenin cleverly redefined the word socialism in order to justify a regime that was going to become decidedly not socialist in the traditional sense of a society governed by its workers. In the meantime, give me money. It takes between two to six weeks full time to make these fucking episodes from research to writing to video editing. And I have to kind of do two jobs at the same time on top of this. And it is extremely strenuous. I don't monetize my channel, even though I'm eligible for it, because I don't want to gunk up your life with even more stupid advertisements than you're already subjected to. And I don't want to do paywalled content because that defeats the whole purpose of doing a show that's geared at spreading knowledge and skills. So your subscriptions are not purchasing a commodity. They are solidarity payments because you're someone who can afford it and you want the show to keep going and you want me to keep going. So if you have the disposable income, subscribe to my Patreon or send me one-time or recurring donations by PayPal. And all the links are in the show notes and the video notes. And if you like the music on the podcast, I make all the music myself and I'm putting together a couple of albums right now. So check out my stuff that you can download for free. And you can also throw more money at me at star69, all one word, dot bandcamp.com. 
And if you want to know more about all the stuff that I'm talking about, there's a link to the biography for this episode and every episode on the show notes of each episode. And you can also find a link to written transcripts of this episode and of every episode. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you can hear the audio podcast version on your podcast app. And if you're listening on podcast, then check out the YouTube's versions, which have a lot of fun pictures and memes and videos of my punim. And please like and subscribe and also review the show on iTunes or Apple Music. It's actually pretty important because it helps the show pop up readily on more searches. And contact me with any corrections or suggestions or comments at WorldwideScroats at gmail.com or comment on the YouTubes. I usually answer them. And until next time, see ya!